Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medina East. If you're new or a guest, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Thanks for coming out. Also want to welcome those of you watching online, joining us from wherever it is you are too. We're glad to have you with us. Uh, as we get started today, I want you guys to think about what comes into your mind when you think of the word persistence. Right? When you hear that word, what is it or who is it that comes into your mind? It was actually a couple weeks ago, I was getting ready for today and talking to my dad about this. And so I asked my dad this question. I said, what, Dad, what comes in your mind when you think of this? And he says, well, have you ever heard the story of the lady who kept failing her driving test? And I said, no, I, I haven't heard that. And she proceeded to tell me this story. And then I went online and started doing some research to, to, to dive into the details. And so apparently back in 2010, there was an article that showed up in the New York Times about a lady who had finally passed her driving test after repeatedly failing over and over and over. And so I want you to think of a number in your mind. How many times do you think this lady failed her driving test before finally passing? So get a number in your head. Just start wherever it is. Get a number. And I, I want to hear from you guys. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want some of you guys to shout out what number you think it is. 15, 20, 9, 50, 150. Does anyone want to go higher? I feel like I'm playing Price is Right or something, right? All right, so 150 is the highest one we have. Are you guys ready for this? This is how many times she failed her driving test before passing. 959 times. And then, you guys thought 150, you're like, no way, that's crazy, right? Then I imagine what it was like on try 960 when you finally get it, right? And so uh, here's, here's a, a little clip from the article. It said, for three years, starting on April uh, 2005, she took the test once a day, five days a week. After that, so after three years, her pace slowed to about twice a week, but she never quit. And so I did the math. It was probably about in the four and a half year range that she was doing this for. A couple other uh, stats about this. Well, one, just so you're not nervous, because you guys are like, is this lady's out on the road somewhere? Like, I should be, <laughs> should be freaking out right now. Uh, the reason she didn't pass was not the physical part of the driving test, it was the written part. So she had grown up in an environment where she never learned how to read, and so that when she finally went to take this test, she was struggling to pass the written part. So, so that's why, so you can, you, can, you can drive safely, you can be at, at ease. Uh, and so this lady was 69 years old when she finally passed the exam, and for every single one of those exams, so for every one of those 500, 959 exams, she had to take public transportation to get to the test, and get this, the test was an hour away, one direction, right? And she had to pay for every one of those exams. She paid $5 per exam. And for those of you who think like me, I already did the math for you, right? So it's over 1,900 hours riding the bus and approximately $4,800 to get your driving test, to get your license. Now, on the positive side of this story, uh, the Kia Motor Company actually caught wind of this story, and upon her finally passing the test, they gave her a free car. They said, you know what? You just deserve a car, right? And they just, they just gave her a car. And as you kind of read through the article, it turns out she ended up appearing in a couple of their primetime commercials. And so this lady's doing all right for herself now, so everything's okay. Um, here's, here's why I think a story like this is so fun and so fascinating just to hear. Uh, it's because all of us, in one form or another, we have all faced scenarios that required persistence, right? We've all been in situations where we had to show resolve or determination or perseverance to reach a goal that we'd set. And... 
Likewise, we've all faced times when we decided it would be far easier to just give up, right? We've all had scenarios where we decided the obstacles, the pain, the amount of time we would have to wait, whatever it was, we decided, you know what? It's just not worth it. And so right now, you guys know this, we're in the middle of a series called The Way of Jesus, and we're working our way through the book of Luke. And so in the passage that we are going to look at today, Jesus is gonna tell his disciples that if they are going to make it, that if at the end of all things they want to be found faithful, then they are gonna have to learn how to overcome some things. And they're gonna have to learn the power of persistence. So if you guys have a Bible with you, you guys can join me in Luke chapter 18. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat back, kind of underneath the seat in front of you. And we say this all the time, but if you're a guest, if you don't have a Bible, you can just take that Bible home with you and consider that a gift from us. So we're gonna be in Luke 18. We're actually gonna start uh, in verse two. Here's what Jesus says. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. So the first character we are introduced in this parable is a judge who we are told neither feared God nor cared about people, cared what they thought. And so uh, we know from the context that Jesus was speaking to his disciples and to a primarily Jewish audience. And uh, so the judge in this story, he literally would have been the exact opposite of what the Jews would have looked for in a judge. And so all throughout the Bible, the term fear of God is used to describe someone, uh, a person of wisdom, of integrity, and of high moral character. And so, uh, in fact, this was a characteristic that they actually specifically looked for when choosing someone for a position of authority. So let me give you a couple examples of this. Um, in Nehemiah, it says this. It says, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do, right? Why did he choose him? Because he feared God more than most. Here's another one. Second Chronicles 19, he, referring to the king, uh, appointed judges in the land in each of the fortified cities of Judah. He told them, consider carefully what you do because you are not judging for mere mortals, but for the Lord who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now, let the fear of the Lord be on you. Judge carefully for with the Lord our God, there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. So in the same way that we would today, the first thing that they looked for in a judge was someone who was fair and just, someone who showed no partiality and someone who could not be bribed. And the way that they would describe a guy like that was to say, this guy, and this guy fears the Lord. And so not only are we uh, told that this guy does not fear the Lord, this judge, we're also told that he doesn't care about people either. And the word that's used here is the word intrepa, which means no shame, no respect, and no regard for. No shame, no respect, no regard for. And so perhaps some of you remember growing up, maybe at some point in your life you heard someone say the phrase, uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. Now I'm sure that no one ever said that to you, but maybe you overheard them saying that to like your brother or your sister, somebody else, right? And so what the person was saying in that moment was that you should feel bad or you should feel remorse for your actions because of how your poor choices have negatively hurt or affected somebody else, right? You should feel ashamed for yourself. And so in our parable, Jesus says, this guy, this guy does not feel that. It says when he does wrong, he shows no shame. He had no remorse and he does not care about people. 
And so if the number one thing you would look for in a judge was someone who was fair and just, I have to imagine the second thing you'd look for would be a judge who had compassion, right? It would be a judge who had genuine concern for the people that he was presiding over. And so on one side of the courtroom, we're told that we have a judge who is neither. He does not fear God and he does not care about people. And clearly Jesus is trying to paint a picture for us of the worst judge imaginable. Now on the other side of the room, we're told that we, there is a widow who is seeking justice. And we don't know exactly what injustice has been done to her, but what we do know is that a widow in her culture would have been considered one of the most vulnerable people of her society. In a first century culture, the courtroom was a place for men. Men were the judges, and men were the ones who went before them to plead their cases. And so the fact that this woman is going on her own means that she literally has nobody to go on her behalf. No husband, no brother, no second cousin, no advocate of any kind. Scholars will also point out the reason that she has to repeatedly go before the judge and make her request, request an audience is because uh, she is most likely a nobody in their mind. And she uh, probably lacked the resources that would have been appropriate to uh, offer the necessary bribe to get a swift and a, a quick hearing. And so Jesus sets the stage for us with these two polar opposite characters. One, a powerful and corrupt judge who is not inclined to help anybody, and the other, a powerless widow, the type of person who would have been voted most likely to be overlooked, right? And so this is the stage that Jesus sets. He continues the story in verse four. He says, for some time he, the judge, refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And so this widow repeatedly comes before this judge asking for justice, and we're told that for a long time the judge refused. And when it says that he refused, I don't think it means he refused to rule in her favor. I think it means he refused to even hear her case. Like he wouldn't even give her the time of day. And I was trying to put myself kind of in the shoes of this woman in that moment and just imagine how discouraging that must have been. Was it because she wasn't important enough? Was it because she was a woman? Was it because he simply didn't care? Right, for whatever reason it is, here is a widow totally alone on the wrong side of an injustice and not only will no one help her, it seems as if nobody even cares. But even though this widow has no advocate and no resources, we're told what she does have is she has persistence. And the parable says she continues to come and make her request before this judge over and over and over until the judge eventually gives in. And then depending on your translation, you get this kind of weird phrase that says, so she won't eventually come and attack me. Some of your other translations might say, uh, so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And uh, the original word that's used here is this word. It's the word hypopiazo, which is fun to say. And uh, it also mean, it means to wear down, to beat, or to blacken the eye. And so the imagery that they're trying to get at here is in my mind, it's the imagery of a boxer who is slowly starting to wear down his opponent, not by the strength of his punches, but by the sheer repetition of them, right? They just keep coming and it's starting to wear you down. 
As I was thinking about this, I realized it was a couple weeks ago that this actually happened to me in my very own house. So uh, some of you guys know we have three children. We have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a two-year-old. And we are at the dinner table, and every night at the dinner table, my eight-year-old and my six-year-old, I'm trying to get them to tell me something about their day. What happened at school? To which they normally say, nothing. And I'm like, all right, not, nothing, more than nothing happened. Tell me something. So we're having this conversation. We're trying to draw out something about their life. And Riley, our oldest one, is, is actually telling me something. So she's actually talking to me. And then Harper is sitting a little bit off in the corner in her high chair, and she's just there at the same time going, daddy, 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 right? And she's old enough now that we're trying to like get all of our children, like don't talk over each other, don't interrupt. So I'm like, all right, hang on. Pause the conversation, Riley. Harper, you just need to wait for a minute. Dad's talking to Riley. I'll help you in just a second. Okay, daddy. So I go back to, go back to Riley. All right, Riley, keep telling me about your day. Five seconds later, daddy, 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 right? Like it just keeps coming. And so we have this same conversation back and forth like three or four times. I'm getting nowhere. It's not working at all. So eventually I say, all right, I can't, I don't want to reward this behavior. I'm telling her not to interrupt. So I'm just like, all right, Riley, we're just gonna focus. We're just gonna have our conversation. We're just gonna ignore her. So we're having our conversation. Daddy, 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 really just keeps coming over and over and over until you know what happens? Eventually she wears me down and I'm just like, all right, stop, I can't do this. Harper, what, what do you need? And I asked my wife this, I was like, she's like, we don't even remember what she needed because it wasn't really even important. She just, she just needed our attention, right? And so uh, I am 6'2", I like to think of myself as a grown adult. Harper is two foot nine and this little girl is wearing me out, right? She completely defeated me, not by the strength of anything, but, but just by the sheer repetition of daddy, 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 right? Over and over and over until I, I, till I gave in, right? I was defeated in my own house, right? And this is a picture, I think, of what Jesus is trying to paint for us. He says, do you guys understand the power of persistence? Now, one of the keys to understanding this parable is something Tony actually talked about uh, a little, maybe about a month ago when he was in chapter 11, and it's the type of logic that Jesus is using here. And so when Jesus gives us a parable, there's two types of logics that he could use, uh, and you can, some of you guys will remember this. So there's analogous logic, which makes a point through similarity or comparison. This would be an analogy. And often when Jesus is teaching through these, he will, he will explain something about the physical world that we understand, and then he'll say, in the same way, and then it'll tell us something about what the kingdom is like. The other type of logic is called a fortiori logic, which makes a point through difference. So this is uh, through contrast, often in a lesser to greater is the normal way Jesus would do it. And in those circumstances, it would be how much more. So again, he would explain something from our physical world that we understand. And then he would say, if this is true, how much more? And then he'd teach us something about the kingdom of God. So a couple examples of this. Uh, first one, so Jesus talks about a mustard seed. He says, hey, have you, have you ever considered a mustard seed? It's something that starts really, really small and it turns into something really, really big. And then he says, in the same way, the kingdom of God, it's gonna start really, really small, but it's gonna turn into something really, really big, right? This is an analogy, it's a comparison, Here's an example of the other one, right? So this is the actual one that Tony walked us through about a month ago, and he told us a story about the parable that uh, a guy is gonna ask his neighbor in the middle of the night for some food. He needs some help with something. He interrupts him. His kids are sleeping, and the guy, he's like, the neighbor's not gonna wanna help him. He's like, leave me alone. Let me sleep. But because you're knocking on his door in the middle of the night, he will reluctantly give you what you ask 
so that you will go away, right? And then he says, if that's true, how much more will a loving God generously give to you when you ask him? Right? This is the parable of contrast. It starts with one thing that we understand, and then he says, how much more, right? And so we have these two options when we come to our parable. And if this is an analogy, this means that God is like this judge, that he is immoral, that he does not care about us. Therefore, we must pester him with our prayers until we eventually wear him down and annoy him so much that he will eventually give us what we want so that we can just go away. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that this is probably how some of us feel when we pray, right? We're asking for something and we just, we feel like we're getting nothing and God is not meeting our timeline. And so we're just like, hello, are you even, are you, are you there? Are you even hearing my requests? Are you mad at me? Are you annoyed with me? Like what, what's going on? I think a lot of us feel this way when we pray. But thankfully, this is not a parable of comparison. This is a parable of contrast. Check out what Jesus says. He says, and the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, if an unjust judge who does not care about people will grant this random lady justice, then how much more will loving God bring justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Right? How much more will a righteous God and a righteous judge Hear our requests as chosen ones. And just like so many other places that talk about prayer, this parable makes an appeal based on the character of God. It says the reason you should have confidence that your prayers will be heard and that you will get justice lies in the character of the one whom you are asking. And so in light of who God is, in light of his character in light of the fact that God is a good and righteous judge, what should we do? Well, Luke actually told us back in verse one. He said, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and never give up. Right, so according to Luke, the point of Jesus's parable, the reason he told it to his disciples was to encourage them to always pray and to never give up, right? It's to be like the widow who showed incredible persistence in her resolve and resolve in her requests. And the language that Jesus uses here, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's incredibly strong language. So the, the phrase should always pray actually communicates divine necessity. Divine necessity. It communicates that prayer should be as important to a believer as air and water. And likewise, the other phrase, uh, give up, it also, it means this, it means to, to give up, to grow weary, or to lose heart. It can even speak to feelings of depression. 
And so the language that he used here, to should always pray and to never give up, there's, there's very strong language. It's powerful. And so when Jesus gives this parable, it seems to be pretty urgent, and it seems to be a pretty weighty conversation that he's having with his disciples. And so on the surface, understanding this parable, what's well, pretty easy because Luke gives that to us. He says, well, what, are you, what are you supposed to do? What's the application? Well, you should always pray and you should never give up. And while that is 100% true, one of the things I think I discovered this week is that I think Jesus is actually, there's another layer that Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. And to be honest, this is something that I've read this parable 100 times that I've never seen before until the past week when I just started to, to dive in a little bit deeper. And so the part that I hadn't seen before, it comes in understanding his final verse. Check out how Jesus concludes the parable. He says, however, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And so after teaching his disciples this parable, he, Jesus leaves his disciples with a question that at first glance seems like it kind of comes out of left field. Right, like the phrase son of man is a loaded phrase and like what does that have to do with the parable? It seems like it has nothing to do with the parable. It doesn't make sense here. And so for me, this last verse, it started to raise more questions than it gave me answers. And so to understand these final words, what we need to do is we need to zoom out a little bit and we need to see the context in which Jesus is saying them. And so if we do that, if we zoom out and we look at the conversation that's happening right before this one, what we find is that Jesus is engaged in a lengthy and complex conversation with the Pharisees and his disciples about two things. It's about the coming of the kingdom of God and something Jesus refers to as the days of the Son of Man. And so without getting lost, too lost in the weeds on this, to the best of my ability, they are talking about the eventual return of Jesus. And they're getting into some pretty complex end times things that we, there's no chance we can explain all of that and work through all of that in, in our time here this morning. So, so I'm gonna show you a slide and don't freak out when you see it because there's zero chance you can read this, okay? So the reason I'm showing this is because I want you to kind of see the context and the flow of what's happening. So, so the Pharisees start this conversation by asking Jesus the question, when, when will the kingdom of God come? Like, when is this happening? And that launches us into this long and lengthy conversation that for most of my life, I assume, ended at the end of chapter 17, Right, I assumed when chapter 18 started, we were maybe in a new location. Jesus is talking to new people, and this is, he just decided, okay, I'm gonna tell my disciples a parable now. I thought these were separate conversations. And I assumed because they put the chapter break there, well, that's why they put it there. But as I started diving into this, I found I don't actually think that's the case. So there's a, an author by the name, an author and scholar by the name of J.B. Green, and one of the things that he pointed out as I studied this week in his commentary was that this verse in in, uh, in verse eight um, that we talked about, the one that seems like it's out of left field, the end of our parable, this verse actually pairs with this first one and it forms something that authors call an inclusio. Now, if you have no idea what that is, I don't normally use that word at all either. And uh, the word means it's this, it's a literary device that authors use to form bookends of one singular conversation. Think of them almost like brackets. And so here's what that means. That means in Luke's mind, this parable is not its own conversation. This parable is the conclusion of a much longer conversation. Does that make sense? 
And so the, the Jesus has this discussion, this complex discussion about the coming of the kingdom of God and the days of the Son of Man. And the discussion starts when the Pharisees ask the question, when? Right, the Pharisees' primary concern, the thing that they want to know, the thing that they are just burning on their mind is Jesus. When is all of this going to happen? Right, they probably want a date, they want a time. When, Jesus, when are these things gonna happen? And you work your way through this conversation and we get down to verse 37. Now the disciples chime in and they say, we're not, maybe we don't need to know when, but Jesus, can you tell us where this is gonna happen? Right, you just said some crazy things and what I wanna know, I wanna know where these things are gonna happen. And then we get to Luke 18 and I think what happens is that Jesus tries to shift the conversation. I think he tries to turn the disciples' focus to what he thinks they should be thinking about. And so when he closes out this conversation by telling them a parable, and Jesus says, instead of being concerned about when the Son of Man will return, instead of being concerned about where the Son of Man will return, what you should be concerned about, what you should be focusing on, is what is the Son of Man going to find when he returns? Right, the question they should be asking, the question they should be concerned about is can they remain faithful until he returns? Because Jesus knows that not everyone will. Right, just like the first disciples, we currently live in this time period between when Jesus first came, which would be what we celebrate at Christmas, and what the Bible talks about the day when he will eventually return, right? There is these kind of two points in history and we are living in the middle of those just like the disciples. And Jesus knows that not every disciple is going to make it during that time. He knows a lot of people are gonna quit. He knows a lot of people are gonna give up. And he knows a lot of people are gonna get tired of waiting for him. And so I think he ends this discussion by telling the disciples how to make it to the finish line. How can you see this thing through? And how do you do that? It's by the power of persistence. It's by faithfully coming before your heavenly father over and over and over again. Now, as I was kind of just reflecting on all of this this past week, my mind went in, in kind of two different directions. The first direction it went is uh, I just started asking myself some questions. I felt like, just like you guys, when you're hearing this, as I'm kind of reading it myself, I'm saying, all right, God, what, what are you trying to teach me through this, right? I'm asking those questions myself. And so there are a handful of questions that I just feel like God was kind of pressing in on me. So I want, I want to start by sharing those with you. So here's a couple of those. First question I, I felt like I need to ask myself was when it comes to my faith, am I a person of persistence or do I give up easily? Right, when things get hard, do I show tenacity and resolve or do I just get frustrated and give up? And things don't go the way that I, I want them to, do I double down on my trust in God or do I like, start to waver in my confidence in God? Just a question I felt like God was asking me. Here's another one. Do my prayers have expiration dates? Do my prayers have expiration dates, right? So I imagine like a lot of you guys, at times I'll ask God for something. I'll say, God, this is what I'm asking for. And in my mind, there is like a timestamp when if he doesn't answer by then, that I'm gonna assume the answer's no or that he didn't like me or that something was wrong, right? And, and unlike the widow, I just, I give up because, well, my prayers had an expiration date on it. 
Some of you guys, this might be the question you need to ask. Have you given up on prayer altogether because you didn't get something or because something didn't go how you hoped? I think for a lot of you guys, or for some of you guys, maybe you stopped praying a long time ago because you had this defining moment where this thing in your life happened, where you lost someone you loved, you prayed for something and it didn't go how you wanted and you had this moment and you just decided right then and there, that's it, I'm out. I'm done with prayer. So maybe for you, it's not a prayer you've given up on. Maybe it's all prayer that you've given up on. And then finally, how about this one? Is prayer a divine necessity to me? For whatever reason, that was something that just, I, was, I felt particularly challenged by as I studied this. That was just something that just kind of jumped off the page and I thought to myself, well, I, I pray, but do I view it as a divine necessity? Right, that language is fairly strong and I don't know if I'm honest if I often put prayer quite in that category. It's important, but as important as air or water, that, that seems a bit strong. And so I felt challenged by that, right? And so, so these questions was kind of one direction my mind went. Here's the other direction it went. When I was in college, uh, I got to a point where I was just kind of frustrated with prayer and I felt like I didn't understand prayer and I felt like I wasn't very good at it. And so I reached out to a guy that I knew. He was kind of a, a friend and a mentor of mine. His name was Brian. I said, Brian, I'm just, I feel stuck. I don't, I don't feel like I'm very good at this whole prayer thing. Can you help? And Brian was a great guy. He said, absolutely, I can help. Why don't you come over to my house next Tuesday? And so I waited the week and I was all excited. And I, I remember coming to his house and I had a notebook and I had a pen and I was like, all right, I'm ready. Give me, like, give me the secrets. Tell me the tips. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you're not gonna need that stuff. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, if, if you wanna get better at this, you don't need some tips from me. What you need to do is you just need to do it. So here's what we're gonna do. He said, we're gonna pray for like an hour. And then we're gonna show up every Tuesday night and we're just gonna keep doing that over and over and over until you feel like you're starting to get the hang of this thing. I remember the moment thinking, that's not what I expected. And that certainly wasn't what I was hoping for. I was hoping for him to give me some tips and some advice so I could just write down some cool thoughts and then I'd be on my way. And he's like, no, no, no. That's not what you need. What you need is you need to just start doing it. Wasn't what I wanted, but it was exactly what I needed. And so what we're gonna do with the rest of our time here is we're actually gonna do that. Now, if you're a guest here, this is not normal. We don't normally do this. But instead of me giving you seven tips on how to become more persistent in prayer, I thought I would just make some space for you guys to actually start doing it. And so I'm gonna invite the band back up and I've asked them to give us about 10 minutes of time to just pray. And then at the end of that 10 minutes, they're gonna close out with three songs like we normally do. Now, for some of you guys in the room, this 10 minutes is gonna, man, you're gonna blink and it will be over. This is gonna go so quick and you're gonna wish we had more time. And for others of you in the room, this is gonna feel like an eternity. Right, for some of you, we're gonna get to like the three minute mark and you're gonna be like, oh no, this is gonna feel like forever. And if that's you, if you fall on that end of the spectrum, I wanna challenge you when you feel that way, when it starts to get uncomfortable, that is when you need to lean in and you need to keep pushing through that. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, having a 10-minute conversation with your heavenly father shouldn't be that difficult. 
but I also understand that it is for a lot of us. And just like my friend Brian, he was smart and wise and he knew, he's like, we don't need to talk about it. You just, you need to start doing it. Uh, a couple other thoughts for you guys. Uh, if you are not a follower of Jesus and you're here, um, that is okay. You can still talk to God. You can talk to him about anything you want. And I imagine if that's you and you're here, you're here because you are either, you're at least open to the idea of following Jesus. Maybe you're curious trying to decide, does he even really exist? And if he does, what is he like? Do I want anything to do with him? And I can't think of a better way for you to start working through some of those questions than to just spend a few minutes asking him, just talking to him. For those of you who are watching online right now, I wanna give you guys the challenge to do this too. I know it would be super easy if I was sitting at home uh, to just say, sweet, I got a 10 minute break. I'm gonna go to the bathroom, I'm gonna get a snack out of the fridge and then I'll make it back before the worship starts. But I know how easy that would be to do. And I wanna challenge you, wherever you are, whether you're in your living room, maybe you're, you're watching because you're, you're traveling somewhere, you're in your hotel room, I want you to challenge you to lean into these 10 minutes and to join us in this time together. And then finally, for any of you guys who are just, you're, you are super freaked out by this and you're just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what I would even, where I would even start. We're gonna have some slides that are just gonna come up on the screen. There's just some Psalms and a couple other passages that can just kind of give you some thoughts and maybe kind of guide you through this time. But I think if we wanna be the people that Jesus talks about in this prayer or in this parable, I think part of it has to be, we just gotta start doing this and we just gotta lean in. So I'm gonna pray for us kind of kick off our time together and then the band's gonna lead us in, uh, lead us in the rest of the night, so the rest of the day. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you promise that you are not like the judge in this parable, that you do care about us, you do love us, and you do hear our prayers. In fact, you invite them, you ask us, you tell us to ask you for things, God. God, we're so grateful that that is the way that you are. Thank you that we are not on an island, we are not alone. God, your word also tells us that you send us the Holy Spirit as an advocate, that we're not even on our own in this prayer thing. But God, we also confess that it is hard and that we give up easily. So God, I pray that you would help us become the type of people you long for us to be, that you would help develop a spirit of persistence in us and that we would continually come to you over and over and over. So God, we're gonna give you the next 10 minutes. We're gonna start that process. And God, I pray that you would meet everyone in this room where they're at in this moment, that as we come before your throne, that you would, you would just show up and you would do whatever it is you want to do. So God, we give you this time now for your glory and your honor. We love you. It's in your son's name. Amen.